friends to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us today for the premiere episode of this podcast. Before I introduce my fabulous first guest, let me tell you a little bit about the show. The AA Recovery Interviews podcast explores the lives of people who have recovered from alcoholism through Alcoholics Anonymous. In each one-on-one interview, my guests share their experience, strength, and hope through a lively discussion of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. In addition to talking about how they got sober, we'll explore the rest of the story by looking at the challenges they've faced and overcome during their months, years, and even decades of sobriety. We'll talk about the joys and tragedies, the good times and bad times, and just everyday life in sobriety. We'll discuss what they've done to stay sober through it all, while enriching their lives and the lives of those they love. Of course, the AA Recovery Interviews podcast respects and protects the anonymity of each guest, using their first name and last initial only. Though you won't know their identity, by the end of each episode, you will know what's in their heart and feel a true connection with their spirit. Also, in accordance with AA's traditions, my anonymous guests and I speak for ourselves only, not for Alcoholics Anonymous at large. We share only our personal experiences with AA recovery and acknowledge that AA's sole concern is the recovery and continued sobriety of those alcoholics who turn to the fellowship for help. As members of AA ourselves, our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. So, my special first guest on this first of many shows to come is Adam M., a man who I've known in the program for over 14 years. When I first met Adam, I was immediately impressed with his incredible commitment to sobriety and his extraordinary willingness to do whatever it takes to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. All these years later, Adam's enthusiasm for and dedication to AA is still unbounded. His is a story of successful and meaningful sobriety, attainable through lots of hard work in AA. So, my friends, please sit back and enjoy the first AA Recovery Interviews show with my special guest, Adam M. Hi, I'm Adam, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Adam. Thanks for joining me by Zoom today. I really appreciate your being here. Thanks for having me, Howard. So, how long have you been sober? I've been sober a little over 16 years. My, my date uh, where I got sober was July 20th. 2004. Cool. And you and I first met, what, about 2007, wasn't it? It was about 07. I had uh, I met you at the Lamplighters Club. I was looking for some meetings to attend and yeah. went to that one and I heard you speak and I decided I wanted to talk to you after the meeting. Well, I remember that day like it was yesterday too. And uh, it's amazing that that was the first time I ever saw you in a meeting and we connected very much like my sponsor and I, when we met, it's the first time I ever saw him in a meeting and he mm. ended up becoming my sponsor. So these things kind of run parallel in a really kind of neat way. And so where did you grow up? I grew up in the Midwest. I was born in Lafayette, Indiana, and then we moved to Danville, Illinois shortly thereafter, and mm-hmm. then to South Bend, Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, before all before moving to Houston in, mm-hmm. uh, in 1991. So I've spent half my childhood in the Midwest, basically, and the other half here in Houston. So you consider yourself a Midwesterner or a Texan? What, what do you, where do you land on that? I guess, I guess I'm half and half, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Okay. What would you say about the, um, the environment in which you grew up? What was it like growing up in your household? Well, you know, I was the oldest of three. I have two younger sisters, mm-hmm. and uh, my parents, of course, by the 
standards of the day back in the late seventies. They weren't mm-hmm. that young when they had me, but they were in their early twenties and they had been recently uh-huh. married. And they certainly, um, my parents certainly gave us just everything they had in terms of time and love and care and attention. Mm. Um, I can tell you though, that from an, an early age, even, even as, as far back as I can remember in preschool, a sense mm-hmm. of loneliness, a sense of not fitting in mm-hmm. and sort of a sense of this uh, term that we hear in the rooms, terminal uniqueness, like there's no one quite like me, you know, which right. certainly has its pitfalls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can remember feeling that way from a very early age. Have you ever uh, looked into why you felt that way when you were a kid? Um, well, you know, I think that there's probably in the great debate of nature versus nurture, all sorts of reasons that fall in both of those categories, and mm-hmm. depending on which way the wind blows any given day is I'm more on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know my parents as young as young parents were uh, very busy. There just wasn't a lot of a lot of extra of anything in my household in terms of time or attention or money. And so I, I know they were very hardworking folks who themselves, I think, had their own sort of challenges and struggles yeah. that they were dealing with from their uh, childhood. I know that as I have in my process of recovery, have kind of looked back into my family tree on both mm-hmm. sides of my family and what I can know firsthand and then also what I can understand through stories passed down that addiction and codependency and some of these challenges that I have certainly faced in my adult life. Mm -hmm. My parents grew up with that. I think their parents grew up with that. It really, to me, highlights the generational nature of of both sides of this disease, you know, both the alcoholism and the sort of Mm -hmm. the Al-Anon codependency side. Yeah, uh-huh. And as I, you know, became an adult, there were some pretty gaping holes in my ability to form relationships and my ability yeah. to just kind of deal with life on life's terms. And so I think yeah. all of that contributed to answer your question to some of that sense of mm-hmm. loneliness or emptiness or not feeling like I belong or fit in. Yeah. Well, I, I hear what you're saying. And, uh, in some ways, it sounds like a very oh, typical American childhood, uh, but also fraught yeah. with some of the things that created loneliness and uh, those kinds of feelings. Regarding alcoholism or the use of alcohol in your family or extended family, did you have exposure to that when you were a kid, or did that was that something you found later on? I can remember as a kid, my first uh, taste of alcohol. Mm-hmm was uh, probably at about two or three years old. I remember being given a shot of whiskey. Hmm. And of course, at the time, that was uh, sort of the, the, the idea that when a kid has a sore throat or a cough, mm-hmm. to give him a shot of whiskey. And so that was my first exposure, literally, to alcohol. My right. parents, not neither one of them were drinkers. How about the extended family, like uh, grandparents? Do you feel like there was a thread of, of any of this going through the family? I do. Yeah. I know on my, my paternal grandfather, I know that he was a drinker, Mm. um, to the extent that he was an alcoholic is not known to me, but, uh, it sure sounds like he has some of the signs and symptoms that would have qualified him for a seat in our rooms. And Mm. I think that my father having been the recipient of some of the instability that 
his home had right um sort of took the opposite position so it's mm-hmm. like uh they call it para-alcoholism i've heard the term where yeah. it's a person who has all the signs and symptoms and struggles yeah of someone who has alcoholism but they refuse to drink because yeah. of what they witnessed or because of a personal decision so maybe that's where the the skipping of a generation occurs when it's so bad that the next generation doesn't want it at all, and then somehow it finds its way into the, the, the succeeding generation. That's exactly what I think. That's exactly uh-huh. what I think happened and certainly explains that skip generation piece. You know, on my, on my mother's side, I don't, I'm not aware of any um, substance abuse, mm-hmm. but there's you know, people who I think struggled mightily with anxiety and with depression yeah. During a time where it wasn't recognized, it wasn't diagnosed, and so it, it stayed hidden. Yeah, uh, but but it was there, and, and I yeah. only know this now, looking back with some of the education and experience I've had in my own journey. That yeah. oh, that was mental illness is what that was. That was you know, so yeah. Well, that's one of the greatest gifts of of, of sobriety in AA, at least for me, is the the ability to become retrospective and look back at how things were, trying to find the missing puzzle pieces. Uh, there's mental il- illness in my family from generations before all the way through the, my generation, my kids' generation, and whether it's depression or anxiety or uh, other other issues, I don't ever remember my parents ever dealing with it, and I, I don't think it was until I came into the program that I dealt with it, and it wasn't for many years after I was already in that I started to deal with it. Yeah, I think that, you know, being born in the time that, that we get to live where at least now there is open discussion and dialogue mm-hmm. about some of these issues hopefully will mm-hmm. prevent unnecessary suffering. It's something that we both hope the enlightenment of our generations will make better for the, the succeeding generations. So let, let me ask you, uh, at what point did you uh, first drink and, uh, and adopt that as something that you wanted to do on an ongoing basis? Well, I, I can remember uh, my first drunk, which occurred when uh, my parents went out of town. I was, I think I was 15, maybe mm-hmm. 16. And uh, I had procured a bottle of just nasty, cheap tequila from mm. some friend of a friend of a cousin or whatever else. And I can remember being at home by myself, deciding I was going to drink this and deciding I was going to get drunk because I really, for some reason, wanted to have that experience. Uh-huh. And so I didn't really know how to drink tequila. I didn't know about the salt and the lime and all that. So I just kind of drank it, gagged, uh-huh. um, but kept just forcing myself to do it. It was the most uh-huh. peculiar thing. Huh. Uh, and, and finally, I did it. I got myself properly drunk. I vomited all over the carpet. Oh. Just a, was a miserable experience. And all I can remember after that was thinking, I can't wait to do that again. Wow. And so, uh, I, so, so there, that peculiar <laughs> mental twist that we hear about in the in the program, I, I definitely had that. And so that was my that was my first. Pro- so that so the hallmarks of that was I was alone. I was all by myself. Uh huh. I didn't really enjoy the experience, but I sure loved not being in my own skin. I yeah. loved being in that altered state. I think it's that way for a yeah. lot of people. It's almost like a perverse trade-off, isn't it? Where <laughs> where you get sick, but yet you want to get sick again. It, it does. Uh, yeah. But somewhere within that, what you went through was the 
whatever the payoff from from drinking was at that first point. I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, the payoff. I mean, I mean, even though I was by myself doing mm-hmm. that, I, I I felt a sense of I felt like a normal teenage kid, hmm. maybe maybe for one of the first times because I yeah. I, I knew other teenage kids were getting drunk. And then by mm-hmm. the time, you know, at some point shortly after I started getting drunk with other people, mm-hmm. I really felt a sense of belonging. And I felt like I was, you know, I fit, I fit in all that loneliness and isolation, and, you know, the painful feelings of not belonging that I had really experienced since as early as I can remember yeah. when I was drinking yeah. with other people, all of that melted away. Yeah, I get that. After you um, first drank, did you, at that point, seek out people who drank too, or were you always around those people, but you weren't one of the ones who wanted to drink? How, how did that work out? Yeah, I was, I, I, for a long time, I was a, a really uh, goody two-shoes kind of kid, you know, wouldn't mm-hmm. do anything. I did uh, I did start smoking cigarettes when I was 12, and I think that was a, a, a gateway into some of my later habits around substance abuse, smoking mm-hmm. cigarettes with other kids allowed me to fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, once I started drinking, I really start I really started trying to seek out other kids who were drinking and smoking marijuana. That mm-hmm. was, I, I can't remember which came first, the alcohol or the marijuana, but they, they were both so closely related that um, I, I began to seek out those folks. And that, that became my, you know, my peer group, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that period in your life, how long did that continue until you started to realize you were having problems with it? Uh, what what was that trajectory like? Well, I didn't have any problems with it until several years later. You know, for me, it was, uh, it was really the magic elixir and the solution to mm-hmm. all of my angsty problems, anxiety, social anxiety, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I finished high school um, I went off to college where it just basically, you know, I added rocket fuel to my drinking and to mm. my, my drug. And, and so it went from being something that I had to kind of manage and keep under wraps because I still lived at my parents' house to uh-huh. basically just full on whenever. And so to me, the academic dimension of college was just ancillary detail to be left for whenever there was time for that. But, you know, drinking and the social aspect of drinking. And it was so much a an antidote to all the feelings of inadequacy and not fitting in mm-hmm. and not belonging. Cause like I had I had friends, I had something to do every Friday and Saturday night or Monday night or Tuesday night. And mm. had this sense of belonging that I know so many of us in the program are desperate to find. It seems like I drank for the same reasons for years and years, and the the reasons really didn't change very much. Even though I was drinking and altering my state of mind, uh, you mentioned earlier about the loneliness and the not fitting in. Did those things follow you and continue to create the environment in which you wanted to drink? They did. In fact, it became, you know, this ever, I needed to up my game with drinking Mm -hmm. continually Mm -hmm. because the idea of, you know, in college, the idea of going home and studying and then going to bed, Mm -hmm. I just couldn't grasp with being by myself with myself. And so needing to be with other people and generally that involving alcohol, smoking pot, et cetera, Uh it it just ever increased. Right, 
right. in my in my in my college days. And so, yeah, it, it kind of was like chasing a demon yeah. and, and, and never quite catching up in terms of that sense of belonging. And then and then and then the identity piece mm-hmm. shows up where, you know, the term pothead or whatever, you know, it's like I became that. Yeah. And I was sort of I sort of felt a, 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 a weird pride, like at least I belonged. At least I was part of something. At least I was known for something mm-hmm. to have a reputation. I remember, so in, you know, I think it was my junior college is when I got a DWI mm-hmm. and uh, got arrested and the whole nine yards put in jail. Mm-hmm. And just where I was at emotionally in my life, mm-hmm. I was proud of that. I felt like I belonged now. I felt a rite of passage, uh, so to speak. <laughs> a rite of passage, yeah. Like I, I could go to the party. Like, hey, there's the yeah, <laughs> there's the guy who was in jail. You know, uh, you know. I, you I, become I a folk felt... hero to all your friends, don't you? <laughs> you come exactly. Back. That's exactly right. <laughs> and what do we do? We drink to celebrate getting thrown in jail. <laughs> yeah, to be on probation, I felt like a you know some kind of a weird tough guy. You know, it, it, yeah. it, it was so you know to look back on it, it's. It's sad and it's funny and it's yeah. all of that, but but I mean, it really was like I I, I really had thought I had arrived in a way when right. I got my first DWI. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I I was curious as to um, what what kind of experiences that and you've already mentioned a few of them. Uh, what kind of experiences did you have with with drugs and pills and so forth? Uh, and, and how did they relate to your drinking? Did one drive the other, or how how did that work out for you? Well, I was kind of a sloppy drunk. And so using only alcohol became problematic. I had, I guess, a weak gut. So I would, you know, I could only take so much liquor before I puked. <laughs> and, you know, and the other thing is when I had too much alcohol in me, mm-hmm. um, I had a tendency to get into fights, physical fights. Oh, yeah. I had a yeah. tendency to break up with girlfriends. I had, a, you know, I was just kind of a messy drunk. Yeah, And so, uh, you know, I, I always had my companion marijuana, which mm-hmm. I liked me on marijuana better than I liked me on alcohol. I was cooler and more mellow and less violent, and less prone to do ridiculous things. Yeah. Um, but I went to school in College Station. And so uh, probably because of my lack of connections, I had always wanted to try the harder drugs, uh-huh. the pills, the cocaine, etc., but was just never really just never able to put it all together to get those things. Plus I didn't have any money anyway. So, well, that's where you, that's where you and I are, are quite a bit alike. And again, uh, yeah. the similarities that I always felt like I was kind of a sloppy drunk too. And so I always felt like marijuana sharpened me up. <laughs> right. But then of course, what I found subsequently was that marijuana and alcohol were the perfect combination. Yes. Yes. I, I remember hearing about that in one of my first AA meetings, and I so related to it as a guy was talking about how he treated his mind mm-hmm. like a chemistry set, always right. adding and fine-tuning <laughs> a little bit more of this or look to find that perfect state, you know, yeah. which after, you know, as anybody knows who's drank or used drugs for a while that it's you just never get back to that perfect state like maybe you once experienced yeah it's like searching for searching for the the holy grail so (laughs) um talk about what the lead-up was to your uh demise so to speak with regard to the the intervening years between college and getting out and when you first noticed 
you were having a problem and what what that was like? Well, so I, I came home from college in, in, in rather a state of disgrace. After four and a half years, the good folks at the university asked me to leave. And so I left and I didn't have a degree, had all this loan debt to, uh, to, to ve- verify that I'd been there, but had not done much, which indeed I had. It's quite amazing. I stayed there as long as I did. So yeah. I came home. I started waiting tables. I started bartending. I eventually, you know, worked my way up to becoming the manager of this particular restaurant. Were you as heavily into the the drinking and drugs during that period as you were in college? Even more so, even more so, because when I moved back from the relatively small town that I went to school to big city Houston, I did find the access to Mm -hmm. the heavier drugs. And I did find more, you know, degenerate people like myself who were, you know, willing to so it really, it really escalated from what was in college, heavy drinking and smoking mm-hmm. pot a lot of a lot of days to that plus the heavier drugs, and mm-hmm. so and then working in the restaurant industry, it's almost uh, a stereotype that there's a lot of mm-hmm. drinking and drugging, and good reason for it too. And and so I was able to find those people and you know develop a new clique, and so as. As time, as the time from when I moved home until I got sober was really just spent working a lot in the restaurants, mm-hmm. doing a lot of uh, recreational drugs and drinking mm-hmm. and just kind of getting by. My life really wasn't ascending and it, w- and it really wasn't descending. It was just kind of in this quagmire of a status quo. Were you living at home at the time, Adam? No, I, I mean, when I first moved home from right. college, I stayed at my parents' house for a few months, but then quickly needed to get out of there because that mm. was too much accountability <laughs> and adult supervision. So, yeah, yeah I lived in, uh, I just found these, you know, kind of crummy yeah. studio and one bedroom apartments. And uh, that's where I, uh, that's where I made my abode. Did the, did the folks, uh, say anything or were they aware of uh, what what you were doing yeah they were aware and they and they made a couple really concerted efforts to intervene um on you know so when i got home from college i think that i think they knew what i was doing in college uh but because i didn't really show show them my grades Mm. they just assumed everything was fine and i was having just a normal college kid experience Mm -hmm. drinking and all that but when i moved home i think they saw you know, not only the failure from being able to complete college, but they also, uh, the short time I lived with them, I think they saw what was really going on, which was uh, that I was struggling. So they, they connected me to a drug and alcohol counselor. I had a, some kind of an assessment at uh, in mm-hmm. a Center for Alcoholism out by where my parents mm-hmm. live. And, you know, I had all the signs and symptoms that was there, but I just in no way was ready. I, I, I could not imagine. And so I just kind of rebuffed whatever attempts they made to, to intercede in my life. And again, left their house to go live on my own. And, um, so they, did, did they, did they recommend AA, the place that you went to, did they say anything about AA at that time? You know, I don't even remember Howard. I, I, I remember mm. the guy I was talking to the counselor and I, I remember just thinking to myself, because he was a sober man. I remember him, him, Uh he was attempting to relate to me about all the things I was doing and, and he was older than me Uh and he was just a different kind of guy for me. And I just remember thinking, dude, I am nothing like you, man. (laughs) 
So I <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, whatever he would. And, and so if he if he even said something about AA, I would I just was not listening. Yeah. Right. So so you you vacated the folks' house uh, on your own accord. You weren't necessarily right. pitched out or. They probably should. They probably should have kicked me out in hindsight. Before. Yeah, <laughs> but right. no, they didn't. Yeah, that hindsight. Yeah, yeah. that's that's right. always perfect. So, so you're living. You're living in these little one room yeah. apartments. You're bartending. You're waiting yeah. tables. How long a period was that? So that was basically from 22 through 27, which was when I got sober. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Five years. Wow. Yeah, five years, wow. and there was a. You know, there was. A, you know, there's there's no big dramatic tales to tell about that five years. You know, it was more just mm-hmm. grinding through life, uh, a lot of broken yeah. relationships, not just romantic relationships, although there were certainly those, but just mm-hmm. kind of friends and moving through people and uh, just really not contributing much to the world. You know, it's kind of a... Yeah, yeah, yeah I get that. The um, I was curious as to whether during... That five-year period, did you ever have glimpses of yourself having a problem with the alcohol and drugs? Or, uh, and if you did, how did you handle that? I, I frequently did. And, uh, yeah, I frequently really? did. And I tried. I remember this one, one of the many things I decided I was going to do to try to get my act together. I was going to start journaling. And, you know, and so like I started uh-huh. so in this one, I, I threw it away a while back, but I kept this one where, you know, it's just like in the writing, I'm just like, I know I'm addicted. I know I've got these problems. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Like, I just thought that writing about it, I joined a basketball league at one point to try to, you know, thought, thought if I just got active enough, I would, <laughs> I would, uh, I would not have to do this. I tried relationships to get me out of my habits and my routines um, how did all that work out for you? It, it worked out absolutely not at all because, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because, because I mean, of course, now I know in hindsight, of course, but the thing that I needed to do the most was open up to somebody about what yeah. was really going on. And that was just seemed impossible for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to, frankly, because I knew if I yeah. did open up, somebody was going to say, dude, you've got a problem, you know? And so I just, I just didn't do it. Yeah. You know? So somewhere along the way, you knew, and it, what, you're, what you're saying then is during that five-year period, you realized you were having a problem. Did it ever occur to you to just stop drinking and using drugs? Yeah, I mean, I, and I tried, and I tried, you know. Yeah. And I, w- I, w- I could go for, uh, uh, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours. Um, hmm. I could, you know, just with the all the willpower and white knuckle capacity that I had, Mm -hmm. I would just force myself to not do anything. But Mm -hmm. what was happening, although I had no idea this was happening at the time, but in hindsight, now that I know a thing or two about this, I know what was happening is that when I would stop drinking or using for 24 hours, all my feelings would come up to the surface, all the feelings that I'd been, you know, basically suppressing with the drugs and alcohol for, you know, by this point, 10 plus years, all mm-hmm. of it would come flowing up to the surface of my consciousness. And it was so uncomfortable. It was mm-hmm. like I it was like there was something took over my brain and drove me to the liquor store or drove me to the dealer's house because mm-hmm. I just couldn't live in my own skin. It was so mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Now, were you surprised by that when that happened? Were you surprised that it 
it came back so quickly? I guess, I don't know if surprise is the right word. I felt really demoralized. Hmm. I was like, what am I going to do? How am hmm. I ever, you know, because in college and even in my, uh, you know, early 20s or, you know, post-college 20s, it was still kind of cute to get all drunk and party and do all this. Like, it was still like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, you know I could still yeah. find my people pretty easily. Uh-huh. But as I progressed along and kind of saw what few friends I had left, but I saw uh-huh. I saw them that they were getting into relationships and they were getting like real jobs and they were, you know, having babies and start like, I just felt like I am, I am left behind. And when I try to stop, I can't stop. So I just don't know what I'm going to do. And so I just kind of had this, I guess we'll just wait and see what happens mindset to this. Yeah. Did you, uh, as you were looking at the people around you moving on with their lives, getting married, having children and that sort of thing, did you perceive in any way that they were doing the same things you were doing, but yet still being able to have those relationships and have those good things? Or did you recognize the difference between somebody who's problem drinking, problem drugging and people who aren't? Yeah, I guess I, I guess I did, you know, because there would be the occasion, whether it was a holiday or a birthday party or some kind of event where some of these people would come out and they would kind of do what I was doing. But I Mm -hmm. knew I was at the next level already. And so I would try to normalize my behavior. Like I would look, you know, I I got fascinated with, uh, you know, trying to find successful people who smoked weed all the time or who drank a lot (laughs) to kind of like, see, I could could do this too. Just like, uh, you know, just like (laughs) Willie Nelson does, you know, or like, you know, just trying to look for anything out in my, in the world in terms of people who had, Uh who had figured out how to both be happy and successful and drink and use drugs, you know? So. Yeah. And that, that of course is, that always goes back to the comparing our insides to other people's (laughs) outsides because, you know, when I get a glimpse of Willie Nelson and uh, the, the or other people who are notorious or known for their drugging or drinking, I'm only seeing a, a an itty bitty small smidgen of their life. I don't I don't see what life is like behind closed doors and drawn drapes. So, I I can imagine what that must have been like for you. So so somewhere into the five years between 22 and 27, was it was it pretty much of a down a, a downhill gradually, or or did you step off a cliff? What happened in the final, the final days before you asked for help? Well, yeah, it was. It, I mean, it was kind of this. Uh, yeah, I guess it was kind of a slow descent. What what happened was is is the drugs I was doing, just I just went deeper down that hole, and so it was more frequent. It was heavier drugs, mm-hmm. um, and so by the time I was on the precipice of getting sober, ironically, I had been given a general manager position at, at this restaurant company that I worked for, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was one of the youngest GMs they've had. And so I had this weird sort of success, although I hated the work and I hated my job, but it's mm-hmm. what my dad did. And so yeah. there was a sense of some kind of accomplishment in that mm-hmm. realm. And, and so that was happening, but, uh, you know, my insides were, and what I mean by that is I just, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror anymore. Yeah. Uh, the people I was hanging around with were sketchier and sketchier. Mm-hmm. My, 
you know, ethics at my job became quite shady. Yeah, I get that. I yeah. get that. So uh, during this period, things were rapidly deteriorating for you towards the end? Yeah, well, towards the end, what happened um, was I, I had met this woman and I really liked her and I had uh, really wanted to have a relationship and it had never, I've just never been able to have it. To, at that point, I just never had been able to have a successful relationship. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I met this girl and I really liked her. And um, we would drink together and smoke pot together. Mm -hmm. But she didn't know about the hard drugs I was doing behind mm -hmm. her back. And so yeah. after after dating her for a couple months, I had, in my infinite wisdom, decided that I was going to get honest with her. Uh huh. And I was going to get clean uh -huh. a couple of days before I got honest with her. Right. And that when I told her that I had quit using hard drugs because I care so much about her, she mm -hmm. would fall head over heels in love with me. And that would be the beginning of the, you know, happily ever after story. Mm -hmm. Well, as I can see now through sane eyes, yeah. the moment that I told her that I had been doing hard drugs behind her back the whole time she's known me <laughs> and that I had a whopping two days of clean time. Uh-huh. She probably stood up from the burrito restaurant we were eating at and walked home and uh, never saw her again. Well, I did see her much later, but uh, she broke wild. up with me. Yeah, That's wild. And, yeah. Wow. That must have been a, a what, a kind of a, a proverbial wake-up call, or, or did you pass that off as just a fluke? Well, it was something, and it wasn't about her necessarily, but I, I think it was about, you know, where I was at with this whole life of mine. Cause mm -hmm. I can also remember around that time, it wasn't just her. I remember vividly at this, I was, you know, in the restaurant business, we go to the bank in the morning from the night before to drop off the money. And I, and I was in the drive through line at the bank to drop off the money. And it was one of these nights or it was one of these mornings rather where I didn't sleep at all the night before. I don't think I had slept much that week. Mm -hmm. My body was aching. My head was racing. Mm -hmm. I was looking at the workday of another 11, 12 hour workday. Yeah. And I heard it in the room was when I got there. I didn't know this phrase at the time, but uh -huh. I mean, t for me, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Wow. And I just, I, I, I just remember saying to myself in the bank teller line, I just can't do this anymore. Wow. And so it coincided with this relationship. And so when she broke up with me after my heartfelt, you know, confession, mm -hmm. I knew that I was at a fork in the road and yeah. that I could either say, well, I guess I'm going to go back to keep doing what I was doing because whatever, uh -huh. or I'm going to do this anyway, but I'm going to do it for me. I don't huh. care if she, whatever. You know. So that was a that was a moment of clarity for you then, uh, punctuated by the end of the relationship. You had a moment of clarity in a bank drive up. Yeah. Line. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Bank of America. Yeah. I, I just I, I huh. can remember it. I could just remember it, and, and it was all. Of course, looking back, it's kind of hard to put it all exactly chronologically yeah. together. But 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 all these seem to happen concurrently. Uh -huh. And, uh, yeah, so there was that moment of clarity and there was mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I had had a lot of the consequences, you know, I spoke of my mm -hmm. DWI and getting yeah. arrested. I got arrested again later for, mm -hmm. uh, related to that DWI. Mm -hmm. I had, 
lost tons of money through mm-hmm. just frivolous spending. I had hurt people. I'd hurt sure. myself. I had, you know, just mm-hmm. countless external things had gone wrong in my life Yeah, that any yeah. sane person would have been like, I think I need to look at my problems, not me. Yeah. But when I did get to that uh, internal rock bottom of, I can't live like this anymore and I'm going to die and that would be a gift to mm. die. Yeah. Um, you know, there, that's kind of where it started to change for me. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying listening to this show, I'd like to invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit bigbookpodcast.com and listen to your heart's content. share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. Okay, we're back. When you had that realization that you wanted to change for yourself and that you were sick and tired of being sick and tired, what was the next step? What was the series of events following that realization? One of the first things I did is I went to this uh, church uh, that offered a support group for people struggling. It was not 12 step, mm-hmm. wasn't AA, mm-hmm. but it was some kind of a faith-based uh, deal. And I, and I remember going to that and I was really reticent to go to that, but I went mm-hmm. and there was like three or four people there yeah. and I didn't get much out of it. I, right. I, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of um, relating that I was able to do to the people uh-huh. there. And, uh, and I had had my own guess I'd call it a bad taste in my mouth from organized religion. And so there was a lot of religious talk there as well. Mm-hmm. And so I left that kind of disheartened. I think I drank a couple more times after this moment that I'm speaking of now, because mm-hmm. sure. I thought that I thought to myself, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe I'm just a drug addict because somehow that seemed a lot cooler to be a yeah. drug addict yeah. and that, you know, an alcoholic to me at the time evoked the guy under the bridge with the sure. brown bag kind of thing. Yeah. And so drug addict felt more sophisticated. If we could only change that perception of the alcoholic from the guy under the bridge to something a little bit more palatable, <laughs> right. it might make a big difference. <laughs> Got a real but, PR issue with alcoholism. Yeah. yeah. So I remember drinking a couple times after yeah. that, thinking uh-huh. I could just drink and not do drugs. But, sure. But I remember having this one drink and then all mm-hmm. I could do was think about going and getting some drugs. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I got to quit all of this. There's mm-hmm. no way I can do it all. And so mm-hmm. I had remembered uh, one of my uh, drug dealers. I was one of their better clients, apparently, yeah. um, ha- had mentioned to me. Uh, sh- she had had moments, stints of sobriety. Yeah. And she had mentioned to me after the alarming rate of purchases from her that I might need to do something because I think she was as just as a human being to another human being genuinely concerned about my well-being. Yeah. And she had mentioned to me something about AA. So I, so I called her up and she told me about the post Oak club. She said, no, it's cool. They've got a coffee bar. There's young people. You should go check it out. Yeah. And I had only at this point ever heard about really ever heard about AA meetings from like, movies or Mm -hmm. TV shows. I had no idea what it was really all about. Sure. But I was in enough pain, not only from the breakup, but just from the 
sick and tired of being sick and tired place that I was in uh-huh. that I decided to muster up what courage I had and go set foot into the post Oak club. Uh-huh. I found the, I guess on Tuesday evenings they had a beginner's meeting and right. I didn't know which room. Somebody helped me find the right room. Uh-huh. And I sat down and that was my first AA meeting. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, so that was, uh, do you count that as the date of your sobriety? You know, I think my actual sobriety day is probably sometime before July 20th, which is when mm-hmm. I declare. Right. But, but that's actually kind of part of how serious I was is, you know, as a guy who always liked to get credit that wasn't earned, mm-hmm. I wasn't exactly sure when my sobriety date was. So instead of picking the wrong earlier date, I decided to pick a later date, which was the 20th. Because right. I absolutely knew I was sober on that day. And so my wow. date might have been the 17th or 14th or something like that. But because I was taking this so seriously, yeah. I was like, I'm going to I'm just going to say the 20th because I know for sure I was sober on that day. Yeah, that's kind of early on honesty, isn't it, Adam? I mean, uh, without even realizing it, maybe at the time that being willing to set your sobriety date later just to be sure that it's it's accurate. Well, there was a bunch of things that were out of character for me that I was yeah, doing around this time. And that, yeah. and that and that was one of them. And that was what I think, you know, I'm so grateful as, you know, being in the rooms, we hear all sorts of stories and all sorts of ways right. that people come into sobriety. And, uh, you know, people come in, they get a nudge from the judge or their wife kicks mm-hmm. them out or they have some kind of a health crisis, et cetera. But, you know, that was not my story. My story was one of an internal rock bottom. And mm-hmm. I'm so, so grateful that I had that internal rock bottom because to me, that's that that's the one that hits the hardest or it hits me the hardest, I should say. Yeah, it sounds like you found AA organically as opposed to right. being sentenced to it or being threatened into it <laughs> right. or finding it at the end of a treatment center protocol. It, that is really very, very cool. That's a lot like my story, too. It's mm-hmm. just amazing the similarities that. I came into the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had had some ultimatums that were tossed my way, uh, so I, I was I was inspired, let's say, to go. But it's always very cool when I meet men and women who make it into the rooms, as I guess, for lack of a better term, organically or or on their own. So tell me about the first weeks and months of sobriety in AA. What were those like for you? It's almost hard to remember what they were like, except looking backward um, through recollection, because I was, I mean, my mind was really foggy. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was not in a good place just from a, you know, I, I probably would have qualified for medical detox, but I didn't do that because I didn't know about medical mm-hmm. detox. I can tell you that in the first meeting that I sat in, that meeting, which, which the meeting that I got my desire chip mm-hmm. in, I was so floored to hear people sharing and it was a beginner's meeting. And so I'm grateful that I found a beginner's mm-hmm. meeting because it was really oriented. Uh, people were sharing a lot about their story, yeah. you know, what it was like. And I heard people talking about their lives. It so shocked me that they were saying the things they were saying because they were saying things that I had in my own way done, yeah, but swore I would never say to another living soul huh. because I thought I was so, unique Mm -hmm. and different from and didn't belong Mm -hmm. 
like I said, all the way back from my childhood, but that played out in the way that I drank and used drugs. Mm -hmm. That when I heard these people talking about the stuff I did and stuff that I didn't do because I wasn't even at that level, I felt, I, I just felt like, oh my God, these people get it. Like, these are my people. And, you know, afterwards, the people that I uh, was there with, they you know, introduced themselves. They were kind to me. There was a genuine light in their eye that I, I didn't see at that church recovery group. Mm-hmm. I certainly hadn't encountered in a long time in my life. But there was also just a lot of laughter. There was friendship. Mm-hmm. It was a fun place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just felt like, okay, this is something. So one of the things they said in that first meeting was to do 90 meetings in 90 days, mm-hmm. which seemed very extreme to me. But I was also quite willing to mm-hmm. do whatever mm-hmm. they told me to do, basically. Yeah. And so in those early weeks, I would go to a meeting every day, every wow. evening. Uh-huh. And about two weeks in, I had been to enough meetings by that point to hear that among the things I need to be doing is I need to be calling other men in the program and uh-huh. talking to them every day, and that yeah. I also needed to get a sponsor. Uh-huh. And those were the two things that everything I had done up to that point to try to stop on my own, I was never willing to talk to anybody about what was really going on. Mm. Uh, but because I was in such pain and willing to do anything to get better, Mm-hmm. I got phone numbers and I called people. And in fact, my first AA phone call was not a phone call at all. It was an email. Thankfully, some guy gave me his card to mm-hmm. call him. Yeah. But on his card was also his email address. And so I couldn't I couldn't pick up the phone to call him. They talk about the 500 pound phone. Right. I totally related to that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of passive, isn't it? But it it. it... I guess it must have worked, huh? It worked. So I emailed this guy. I was like, hey, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. This, I'm new to this. Uh-huh. Here, you know, and and he wrote back this beautiful two or three page email. Wow. Detailing all, I mean, answering all my questions, sharing about himself. I mean, I'm sure he would have much rather had the five or ten minute conversation that could have accomplished the same thing. Yeah, but he took time out of his life to write that two or three pages to you, didn't he? He did. He did. So, um, and, and, and then I, and then after that email, I, I became willing to call some other guys. And I can remember a couple of the guys I called and, mm-hmm. you know, the awkward, Hey, how's your day going? Dude? Sure. You know, kind of conversations that we had, uh-huh. uh, but how the more that I would do phone calls, go to meetings, read the book, the more I felt like I belonged there. Yeah. More, I get I that. Like I had, had sort of, I have a place here. Yeah, that feeling of belonging is so important, and mm. I do think that feeling welcome and what you said about people reaching out to you is so critical for the newcomer because unless we feel welcome in AA, there's a good chance that either we'll go to a different meeting or maybe we just won't participate anymore at all. So you did 90 meetings in 90 days. Did did you track that on a calendar? Or how did you do that? Yeah, I tracked it. Really? I got to be pretty serious about doing everything that was That's cool. told to me. You That's know? cool. So 90, yeah. 90 meetings in 90 days. And so what happens at day 91? What was your thinking? <laughs> well, what was interesting is that, uh, you know, a couple things were, were happening. So I'm doing my 90 and 90. I'm getting sober. I had gotten a sponsor. We had been in the process of working the steps. Uh-huh. And I was also still at my restaurant job. 
wow. which was a bad scene for me. It was, oh, yeah. you know, not just very difficult work environment, long hours, et cetera, but it had all the reminders of my past life, you know, wow. situationally and the people, et cetera. Was there any sobriety around you? Were there any people that you knew of in AA in your environs there? There was one person at this restaurant who, ironically, she was the bartender, <laughs> but, she, <laughs> but she had been sober for, I remember, 10 years. Wow. Is what she shared with me. And uh-huh. I was shocked. I was like, oh my God, 10 years. That's a lifetime. I can't believe, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so she would, uh, she was really useful because she would talk to me just about AA. Uh-huh. You know, she didn't go to the meetings I went to, but, you know, she had her own program in mm-hmm. the suburb she lived in. But it was just really useful to have another person to be able to talk to AA stuff about in addition to the, to the people that I was talking about. And I can remember there was this one day where I was really struggling. I was, uh, you know, not in a good place emotionally. Mm-hmm. I was having to do something at the restaurant that involved me handling liquor. I was mm-hmm. having to make a drink and mm-hmm. the smell had kind of gotten to me, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And in through the front door of the restaurant, this guy stumbles in the door mm-hmm. and he's holding his abdomen. Mm-hmm. And what has happened is this man, had just been shot. Oh my in, goodness. In the parking lot of oh. our restaurant. Oh no. And so he comes in and collapses. And of course there's a bit of flurry of activity and I run over and some other people do too. And we get some towels to, you know, you know, stop the bleeding from the sure. stomach. Wow. And, uh, and, and so somehow I've got his head on my knees kind of in my lap while somebody else is calling the aunt. Anyway, this guy reeks of alcohol. Wow. And so what had happened is he was in the parking lot, driving through the neighborhood, very intoxicated, stopped and went out to pee Mm -hmm. in the parking lot. Well, Mm -hmm. while he was peeing, the security guard who patrols the parking lot comes over to ask him what's going on. They get into a scuffle. He tries to steal the security guard's gun. She pulls it out and shoots him in the stomach. Oh, my goodness. And consequently, he was standing by my truck and puts a hole in my truck as well. And so... Oh, the irony. The irony of it all. You know, so needless to say, I forgot all about whatever I was worried about that day. Wow. But but I I decided to interpret that event as a sign from a higher power that, man... This is me. That's the kind of stuff I would do. Is mm-hmm. I would not only drive around really drunk, I would pee in places I shouldn't pee, and I would get in fights with people I shouldn't get in fights with. And so, yeah. in a way, while I was helping that man there in my lap, I felt like I was holding myself in a kind of detached way. And like, and so I went to a meeting that night, and I shared about it. And wow, you know, it just and, and whatever. I, like I said, whatever I was struggling with. Past, you know? Well, and, and it's, it's brilliant that you went to the meeting that night. It's so important, I think, whenever we have these life-changing events to be able to go somewhere where we can share them very close to when the event happened. Uh, if for no other reason, then it allows us to know that we're not the only person in the world who's gone through that kind of thing. And uh, it's, it's pretty important. I want to ask you about uh, sponsorship. Did you get a sponsor right away or how did you do that? I did. I got a sponsor. I was about two or three weeks into the program. Uh-huh. It, it, I, I was really scared to do it. Right. Um, but I was like, I, I, I just got to do this, you know. And uh-huh. so, I, yeah, I asked this fella um, at the AA club 
uh, uh-huh. to be my sponsor. And he said yes. And it turns out I was his first sponsee. Oh, cool. So, cool. Yeah. How long had he been sober? He had been sober, I think at that time, he'd been sober a little over a year. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. That's, yeah. not un- that's not unlike my, my story. Again, these parallels yeah, between us. I know. Because I got asked to be a sponsor by a guy when I was about a year and a few months sober, and he had just come in. What were the milestones in your early sobriety? So during these first few months of sobriety, I quickly realized that this job situation I had mm-hmm. was not going to work for me. It was, it was too difficult, and I didn't like the, you know, it was, it was just an awful scene. And so this was in late 04. At this time, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were really escalating. They were, KBR company was hiring civilians to go Mm -hmm. over to these two countries and work on military installations Uh to do sort of logistical type service work uh, to free up troops to do the fighting. And so there was a huge uh, Uh hiring spree that this company was doing. And so... From the way it looked to me, it was a ticket out of my situation. It was a good job that paid well, that I could travel, that I could leave behind my dingy one-bedroom apartment and my job that I no longer liked, plus just my whole life, my whole scene. Mm -hmm. And so I went and uh, interviewed at one of their big hiring events, and they said, look, you know, we, we don't have much for you and your qualifications, but you can be a cook and you can and you can uh, go over to Afghanistan and we'll pay you this much and you don't have to worry about it. And I was like, sign me up. So so you you <laughs> things had gotten to the point where you were willing to go to a war zone and be a cook rather than stay here. <laughs> yeah. Whether. Yeah. Because, you know, because I had become a, a general manager. Yeah. I, I, I made a decent salary. And because of the wreckage of my pre-recovery life, I had debts galore. And I mean, I, my financial, I was just a mess, you know. Mm. And so the only way I could get out of the restaurant industry was to find something comparable in pay, which I had no, you know, at this point, no degree, no, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no nothing but restaurant experience. Wow. So it was go start as a, you know, minimum wage job, which I couldn't afford to do either. Uh-huh. So this to me was like an elegant solution to my to my dilemma and I took it. Wow. So you went over to Afghanistan in uh, 2004? I was four months sober. Four months sober. Wow. Wow. When you got over there, what was it, what was that like, especially with regard to your sobriety? Well, fortunately, because I had really done a ton of work before I left in terms of doing the steps and a bunch of meetings, I was in pretty good fit spiritual condition, you know, and I, and I'd also, was still resolute in my hitting bottom and deciding that this is where my life has to change. Mm-hmm. Now in Afghanistan, it was a really interesting life. You know, we worked 12 hour days, seven days a week mm-hmm. in a very austere, you know, we lived in tents. I mean, it was a pretty hmm. unusual situation. There were no meetings hmm. at the bases I was at, which I yeah. had hoped there would be meetings, but there wasn't. Huh. So I brought my big book. I bought my, brought my 24 hours a day book and I'd stay in contact with people via the telephone and email from the AA club. And wow. I was part of my sponsor. Wow. Long distance so, AA, huh? Long distance AA. And I would get grapevines and this one fellow would mail me my chips. Wow. You know, as each month of sobriety ticked That's off, cool. he would mail me my chip. And, uh-huh. uh, and so it was, uh, it was working, you know, yeah. it was working when yeah. I would come home, 
I would go to meetings. I did a lot of traveling to other countries on, uh-huh. on breaks, and I would find AA meetings in other countries and wow. I would go, go to them as well. So that's commitment. It, well, I mean, yeah, I want I wanted it, and um, and it was uh, and it was me going to any lengths to stay sober mm. in that kind of a situation. So it was a different kind of a program than living in Houston, but you know, it worked. It kept me sober. Mm. So what kind of commitment was that to going? Was that a, a year, two years? How, how long were you over there? I signed up for a year. It's a year contract, but I, I ended up staying 25 months. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and what I had found was that in one sense, it was really good. Like I was able to, you know, pay off all my debt and I was able to save a good bit of money. And I got to travel a lot and I got to do a lot of things that I, in my, you know, drunken high life never got a chance to do, never Mm -hmm. got a chance to travel. So on one side of things, it was extremely rewarding and very fulfilling. But on the other side, in some ways I was kind of running away from life still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I didn't have any, you know, I I missed out a lot of stuff with my family, Mm -hmm. no relationships. I had some buddies over there, but that was it. And plus the the fervor with which I worked my program in Houston for the four months before I went over there and sort of filled that spiritual bank account that you talked about. My my bank account was getting depleted and I wasn't really working on myself. Mm-hmm. I was reading and I was praying, but I had no meetings to go to. And so I quickly realized that at some point I'm going to have to pull the plug on this and go back home and sort of face life again. Yeah, I get that. And so, and so by 27 months, or I'm sorry, by 25 months of being over there, I finally decided it was time. You were ready to come come back. back. Wow, that's that's amazing. So, your program starts to wane. You realize that it's starting to wane, and that goes into your decision to pack up and go home at 25 months. Yeah. Yeah, 25 months of being over there. I I packed up to come home. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I can tell you when I got home and I, you know, the jet lag wore off and I started getting my feet on the ground and tried to figure out where I'm going to, what I'm going to do now, Uh that I realized that I was not in a good place emotionally. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, I felt like my brain was just soaking in this depressed fluid that I couldn't. I couldn't think clearly. I um, I thought that I needed to go and volunteer. I was at this point struggling with like, ah, am I an alcoholic? Am I re- do I really need to go to those meetings? <laughs> like I just did all yeah. this time overseas with no meetings, and like I'm fine, and I really just want to be normal, and yeah. I want to just yeah. you know meet a girl and get married and just like live happily ever after kind of a thing. Wow. And so. I started like volunteering at the food bank and uh, I remember this one day I was just didn't have anything to do and I was in a, I went to this AA meeting at the at the same AA club I got sober there was a newcomer there at, with newcomers at these meetings uh, uh-huh. where I went they they would pass around a little phone list and if you were uh, willing to you'd put your name and number oh, for yeah. the newcomer to call I'd, I'd done it before many times never never uh-huh. got a call or whatever else but Anyway, I just signed my name up for this newcomer. Anyway, a day goes by, and I remember driving around thinking, I think I'm really done with AA. Wow. And I'll be darned if that guy doesn't call me, this newcomer. And he has this, uh, you know, classic newcomer's tragic story. You know, his wife had left him, Uh his daughter's not speaking to him, and he's screwed everything up. and, And, like, 
you know, I didn't know what this is my first newcomer call. So I just kind of drew upon my limited AA training. Uh-huh. I said, Hey man, it's going to be okay. Just don't drink today. Hey, let's go to a meeting. I'll meet you here at this place. And we'll talk afterwards and get some coffee. Like I just did all the things that people did for me. Wow. Cause that's all I knew how to do. And so we got off the phone and I had to pull the car over because I was so emotional because it was so clear to me, much like the guy who got shot at the restaurant, much like so many other of these experiences, it was so clear to me that this was higher powers Mm -hmm. communication. Like this is like, Adam, your job is you don't need to go volunteer at the food bank. It's perfectly fine service work, but mm-hmm. I am uniquely qualified to help other alcoholics. And so wow. I just, I, I'm in, you know, I just, I, in that moment, after having that realization, I recommitted myself to the program. Mm-hmm. I met you probably a couple days after that, Howard, at the land, cause I started going to more uh, meetings in different that. places. I remember that the very first, very first day yeah, I met you yeah. and you told me you had been in Afghanistan. I thought you were a soldier. Yeah. Right. Right. That's, that's, that's pretty So that's, pretty yeah. And, and you know, and, and, and the follow-up to that story, you know, like I went to the meeting to meet that guy. He never showed up. He never showed up. He probably saved my life and has no idea that he, you know, so like the debt of gratitude to that fellow for making that call. I mean, it's just, it's just mind blowing. Did you ever run into him again? Did you ever no, see him after? I have no idea who it is. It might be somebody I know. I don't know. But oh my I never, gosh. Yeah. He never called again. Um, he, you know, who knows? It could have just been an angel calling me. For all God, that's else. that that's amazing. Well, that's one of the things I, I love about your your story and about you is that you've had these serendipitous God moments, as we call them, or maybe just uh, awarenesses along the way that you've really paid attention to. And and I I love the fact that you have given them the weight that they really deserve. That these things were all turning points for you, and. They're beyond the realm of coincidence, uh, like the the guy being shot and this this other guy. Yeah. So you so you're sober two and a half years, and um, what are some of the other things that you faced in your years of recovery now that kind of stick out to you as milestones or as points of reference along the way, where you either got through good times without drinking or you got through bad times without drinking. Uh, can can you give me some examples of some of those? Well, sure. So, um, you know, I meet you and you agree to be my temporary sponsor for 30 days under certain criteria that uh, <laughs> that I <laughs> that I call you regularly and that I work steps with you and uh, that sort of thing. You turned me on. Yeah. You turned me on to men's meetings, uh, right. which I had resisted because, you know, in hindsight, I was afraid of men is, is what it boiled down right. to. And so. Uh-huh. Again, overcoming fears and being willing to do what was asked of me has really served uh-huh. me so well. And so, you know, the next the next period of my sobriety, like you said, I had, you know, two and a half out or two and a half years rather of sober time, but I hadn't worked two and a half years worth of a program, you know. So I was really right. Yeah. Even though I had a little bit of time, I was emotionally and spiritually and even mentally. I like I said, I was in a I was in a bad place post Afghanistan. Sure. And so I so I got to work and uh, you know work the steps with you. I got into a relationship, a romantic relationship, and I I thought it would go away. It was my first sober relationship, and I just figured sure all my relationship problems had to do with my drinking and drug use. And so the fact mm-hmm. that I'm sober, this should be easy. Well couldn't be further from the truth. It was really a 
very painful uh, experience. All my insecurities, sure. all my issues with worthiness and uh, vulnerability and the ability to, you know, just connect with another human being, insecurities, all of that just came flaring up and I didn't have my medicine. I didn't have alcohol or drugs to numb it, you know, so it was a very difficult ride and it, and it, and what it did that, that difficult relationship led me into some deeper emotional work. You know, I, I joined a couple other 12 step programs mm-hmm. and for the next few, you know, probably three or four years, I really focused and I, and had the, had the luxury of doing so because I had made some money in Afghanistan. And so uh-huh. I would just have, you know, kind of temporary or side jobs to kind of, uh, get me by while the majority uh-huh. of my time and energy was focused on 12 step recovery therapy, uh, different experiential type healing mo- modalities where I really got to understand more about myself, more about mm-hmm. what had happened in my life to have me be the way that I am, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, really, uh, really was a prolonged spiritual awakening in hindsight that it was going through. And, and I could tell you it wasn't enjoyable and it wasn't fun and, yeah. Many times I felt like I was losing my mind and I've, I've come to learn that sometimes when you're doing a lot yeah. of work on yourself, when you feel like you're losing your mind, you're really finding your true self uh-huh. is what it boils down to. What's amazing to me about the, this part of your story, and it's always kind of astounded me that you face some of these really, really difficult times. I remember the jobs yeah. that you had as a delivery guy and, and, and as a, as a uh, mm-hmm. you know, personal cook or chef and some of these other things that you had done. And I remember thinking, now here's a guy who's willing to do whatever it takes and do the real important inside work. And I learned a lot from you during that period because I've done a lot of that kind of work myself. To me, it was a beautiful demonstration of a guy who recognizes the importance of the additional work that's necessary in Alcoholics Anonymous. uh, And it all starts with sobriety. It does. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you had... You had a wife and kids to think about, you know, and I know I know a lot of people do. I I can tell you that I just felt so broken around relationships and I couldn't. Right. You know, I you know, I I would hear guys in meetings talk about the struggles they're having with their wives and families. And and I I had a hard time Mm -hmm. relating because I'm like, man, but you get to have a wife and a family. You know, I just and now I look back and I can see that. Thank God I was single. Thank God I didn't have some of the responsibilities during that really precious time in my life because it did allow me to go and you know basically just take menial jobs to keep the lights on so i could really focus on on my healing work you know i feel like it was a huge blessing that i was given yeah uh, to not get married until later in recovery yeah it's it and, and i and i saw it very much as a blessing for you too yeah how did you feel about the quality of your sobriety while you were doing all that additional work? I felt like it was stronger. Th- I felt like it was stronger than ever. You know, uh, yeah, really? yeah. Uh-huh. there was nothing. I mean, the, the kind of work I was doing around relationships and um, codependency and family of origin, childhood wounds and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. None of it was in conflict with anything in AA. Certainly none of it was in conflict mm-hmm. with anything that had to do with staying sober. And I did have to find mm-hmm. a sweet spot with that, you know, because like right. you just mentioned earlier, fortunately, it was never lost on me that none of this matters. None of this other work matters unless I'm sober. Because for me, as an alcoholic, yeah, 
that's the bottom line. If I'm sober, I've got a chance. And if I'm not, all bets are off. So it doesn't really matter if I've dealt with all my mommy or daddy issues if I'm not able to stay sober today. Yeah, that's so important. From my viewpoint, what you did to stay sober during those times by augmenting your program with all these other efforts helped not only helped you get through them, but kind of paved the way. You know, you came really close to the edge a few times, I can remember. Yeah. And it's it's just, it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear you say that it's about the work that you did that made the well, difference. Well, and, and I, you know, give all credit to men like yourself, and there's a handful of other men who who I knew to be upstanding, sober men in Alcoholics Anonymous, but they also mm -hmm. did other things. And so, right. you know, whether it's this program or that program or this thing, I mean, a lot of that stuff that I had, had have done or tried in the past, I don't necessarily do anymore. But to know guys like yourself, Howard, who like, you know, you're the, you know, you're rock solid in your AA program and you do other stuff, it gave me permission because part of my all or none thinking was that I either had to do this only or that only. And yeah. just as I surveyed the men in my life, you know, in, in this time of my recovery, all the men who had what I wanted had all done things in addition to their AA program, but their AA program was the yeah. foundation and that's what they always came back yeah. to, you know? So that kind of variety is necessary. And I know that you've You've experienced that. I've seen you with men that you've sponsored and your gifting of yourself and your experience to other people. You know, we're talking about the years now yeah. because you've been sober, six, yeah. you know, 16 years. It's hard to sum it up all at one time. But I like for our listeners to know, especially for people who are relatively early in sobriety, to know that we get through whatever we need to get through, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff. But at the core of it all is the staying sober part. And I wondered if you could just tell me about some of the some of the other a, a few of the other big gifts of the program for you. Well, I mean, the biggest has been getting to meet and date and marry my wife. I mean, oh, that, yeah. I mean, to have a relationship to, uh, and of course, you know, it's been a huge learning curve. But thankfully, I have oh, people yeah. to turn to, like yourself, uh -huh. um, yeah. who know how to be married and know how to stay married. So that and then additional gifts of our two children and, and to get uh -huh. to be a father and to get to be a husband and to get to be a productive member of society. I have a career now that is involves helping other people. And I just, I couldn't have imagined how this life would have came about. I mean, it makes me believe in miracles, you know, because from, from where uh -huh. I was in line at the bank, sick and tired of being sick and tired and just in one of the darkest places of my life to where I'm at today. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I have to believe in miracles because I just can't get from there to here without some concept that there's some force beyond me or beyond us that is advocating for our lives. And I've seen you go through some difficult times, even within oh, the yeah. blessing part of, of, of your of your life. And, well, it's work. Uh, yeah, it's I always. Work. Well, it's a lot of work because I, I always used to, when I was new in sobriety, wonder how, in what tragic situation would it be okay for me <laughs> right. to drink? You know, it, it faced with what particular difficulty in life would get so bad that it'd be okay. Did you ever find that? I did. I would, uh, you know, that whole comparing other people's outsides to my insides. Yeah. I really, uh, you know, my story of sobriety is one where in certain ways my life got more difficult after I got sober mm -hmm. and, and, and partly because 
I had to figure out a bunch of things that I never learned uh, during the times of my life where I was supposed to learn it. So whether it was relationship or job mm-hmm. or, you know, there was, you know, there was a way that I had at times wondered, am I, am I working this thing right? It's like, a, I kind of thought, you know, based on a very sort of immature understanding that once I got sober, mm-hmm. that everything was going to just be great in my life. Yeah. And I never, I never got it that, no, this being sober gives me a chance to live life on life's terms. And part of life's on life's yeah. terms means there are some really hard things that we have to endure and go through. And so, you know, I feel like that it does sometimes get worse before it gets better. I mean, that's been my experience. Yeah. And sometimes it gets worse, then it gets better, then it gets worse, <laughs> yeah, then it right. gets different, then it changes. You know, and we've got all that kind of stuff going on. But at the at the end of it all, the staying sober part makes getting through those difficulties and challenges and gifts and marvelous times doable. And I've seen you do it. And I've always thought if, if there was a poster guy for for uh, the effectiveness of this program, it, it's, it's a guy like you. And I so appreciate you sharing your life with me and with the, the folks who are going to listen to this podcast. It's inspiring. It's uh, a real delight to have you as one of the closest people in my life. I love you, and um, I, I can't thank you enough for being my premier episode <laughs> guy, man. You're it, man. When, when, years from now, when they're digging into the archives, they're going to hear you talking. Oh, well, man, well so. I appreciate you, Howard. You, you have, in terms of people in my life that have had the greatest impact, I mean, you are at the top of the list as being a man who's walked with me through so much of this and just shown me what it means to be a sober man. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. been a real joy, though. Yeah, Adam. it's been a real joy. And I and and to, you know, getting away from the mutual admiration society <laughs> here for a little bit, I just want to say thanks so much for doing this today. And uh, I, I look forward to many, many more years with you as a as a friend and uh, partner on the journey that road of happy destiny, right? Yeah, me too. So again, many thanks. Thank you, Howard. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks, Adam. Well, my friends, that's it for our premiere show. I'm grateful that you joined us. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, friends, and loved ones. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. And visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. To get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on its way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 